Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is County Supervisor Joe Simidian, and we are here once again for a telephone town hall uh, to cover the uh, issues of the day with respect to COVID-19. Uh, as I have mentioned previously, uh, I have uh, the privilege of serving as the County Supervisor for the Northwest portion of Santa Clara County, District 5. Uh, many of you I have worked with uh, over the years uh, in prior positions, uh, including during my tenure in the California State Senate. Uh, but uh, one of the reasons I thought these uh, telephone town halls might be particularly helpful is uh, in my role as chair of the county's health and hospital committee, uh, I am uh, oftentimes uh, thrust into the middle of these COVID-19 uh, conversations and decisions and uh, wanted to share what we have with you, as well as bring some expertise uh, that uh, we think is particularly helpful. So thank you again uh, for being with us. Again, I'm County Supervisor Joe Simidian, and this is uh, today's telephone town hall on COVID-19. We have two really first-rate guests with us today. Uh, one is Dr. George Rutherford, and Dr. Rutherford uh, is the uh, professor of epidemiology. Forgive me, Dr. Rutherford. Uh, Dr. Rutherford is the Professor of Epidemiology and the Director of the Prevention and Public Health Group at the UC San Francisco uh, School of Medicine. Uh, he has a long career in public health, including uh, having served previously as our state's public health officer, so he is uh, familiar with this kind of public health work uh, in a very hands-on uh, way. Uh, he has, uh, uh, I find, a very intriguing academic background. I received his BA in the classics uh, at Stanford University uh, many years ago, where he also received a bachelor's of science in chemistry and a master's degree in history before uh, he went on to get his MD from Duke University. So we thank Dr. George Rutherford for uh, being with us today. Uh, and we also have with us uh, Ms. Greta Hansen, who is a, a repeat visitor because um, she had so much helpful information uh, when uh, she joined us previously, I should let you know that uh, Ms. Hansen is the Chief Assistant County Counsel here at Santa Clara County. That uh, essentially means she's the uh, second in command for our Office of County Counsel. These are the folks who handle our legal matters here at the county. Uh, she is um, on top of what is and isn't allowed uh, and the seemingly ever-changing uh, set of rules and regulations from uh, week to week and even day to day sometimes. Um, but also, importantly for this call, she is uh, one of the rotating directors of our EOC, our Emergency Operations Center, uh, handling the COVID-19 crisis here in Santa Clara County. So she has not only that legal background and regulatory background, but has sort of hands-on day-to-day experience with uh, the nature of the challenge we are all facing. Uh, prior to uh, joining us here at the county, she uh, was both a law clerk to Judge uh, Stephen Reinhardt, spent some time working with the Northern California ACLU, and uh, her uh, BA is from Brown University, a law degree from University of California at Berkeley School of Law. Uh, so, um, uh, again, really pleased that uh, she could join us again uh, to provide both some better understanding of the regulatory framework uh, and also the sort of day-to-day -day challenges of managing the COVID crisis here in our county. So once again, for those of you who just joined us, this is County Supervisor Joe Simidian with our guest, Dr. George Rutherford from the 
UC San Francisco School of Medicine and Ms. Greta Hansen uh, from our county council's office here at Santa Clara County. We're going to try and focus a little bit today on sort of uh, what the longer term future looks like. Uh, and uh, by that, I mean six months, a year, two years. Uh, this is a, a question or an issue that gets raised with me a lot by my uh, constituents. And uh, we, uh, I know, are all uh, sort of struggling with the need to seemingly change uh, pace or follow a new set of rules uh, week to week, day to day. Uh, not too long ago, we had uh, some businesses that were told they could open on a Monday and then had to close on a Wednesday, uh, creating a little bit of whiplash for us all, I know. And I want to just talk with both Dr. Rutherford from a medical standpoint and Ms. Hansen from a uh, sort of a, a planning standpoint, uh, where, where we think we're headed longer term. There will be an opportunity for questions, and in fact, we have um, set aside extra time for questions directly in response to uh, comments from uh, previous listeners. So if you would like to ask a question, just push star three at any point during the call, and uh, that will get you transferred to someone who can help queue up questions. We may not be able to get, in fact, I'm sure we won't be able to get to them all, uh, but I want to get started right away so that we can get to as many of your questions as possible. So once again, this is County Supervisor Joe Simidian, and uh, we welcome you to our call on COVID-19 with Dr. George Rutherford from UC San Francisco's Medical School and Greta Hansen, our uh, County Council's representative from Santa Clara County. Uh, and again, if you have questions, just push uh, star three at any point in the call. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, good morning. How are you, sir? Good, thanks. How about you? I'm being you know, surviving well, the fire. Yeah, no, we're it's a challenging time for uh, everyone in the Bay Area. There's no no question about that. And uh, again, uh, before I get to, uh, right into it, I probably should mention for those who are looking for an easy to access resource on uh, fire issues, uh, I would recommend that you just search Cal Fire, which is our uh, state. Um, uh, uh, operation here uh, it coordinates with all of the local agencies and departments. Uh, Fire.ca.gov or just search Cal Fire. Uh, we'll get you there and uh, hope everybody stays safe. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, you've been at this for a while. My recollection is that not only were you the public health officer here in the state some years ago, but you've done uh, epidemiological work uh, not only around the country but around the world, everywhere from Africa to Latin America to Ukraine. I uh, I was uh, really taken by the, the breadth as well as depth of your work here. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a lot of folks who are, are sort of saying, all right, we, we didn't quite know what to expect when all this uh, started a uh, half dozen months or more ago. Uh, we, you know, we are, as I say, sort of um, lurching from uh, regulatory order to regulatory order. Do you have, uh, in terms of the virus itself, you know, sort of a sense of, uh, where are we and where are we headed? So let's start with the where are we? We're we're you know sort of six months in. Um, are we winning? Are we losing? Are we uh, one step forward, two steps back? How would you characterize how we're doing so far, both in the Bay Area generally and you know around the state sure. and the nation and even here in Santa Clara County to the extent you have that granular take? I looked it up this morning. Um, there you so go. it's Thanks. the uh, so I think worldwide um, the news is not great. Uh, there is widespread transmission in uh, Latin America, in Brazil, Peru, Mexico, uh, particularly. 
Um, there is a renewed transmission in Europe and pretty much unabated transmission in, in Southern Africa and India uh, and a large second wave of infection in, in Iran. So whatever we were doing right, we continue to do right in China, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, um, uh, Southeast Asia, but um, that's about the only place it's really working uh, well. Uh, in the United States, we're kind of we're starting a downslope of a second wave of infection, uh, as you, which, as you know, uh, really consumed the South and the Southwest. Um, and in California, we're probably also on the downslope of the second wave of uh, uh, of infection, uh, with the predominant mode of predominant sort of epidemiologic paradigm, um, uh, intense transmission among. Uh, poor blue-collar, frontline worker, Latino populations, uh, which seems to have moved uh, very uh, clearly from urban areas to uh, more rural areas. And in California, eight of the 10 counties with the fastest growth are in the Central Valley, uh, which, which involves transmission among farm, among, um, farm workers, as well as among uh, workers in uh, food processing uh, plants. In the Bay Area, uh, where we've done uh, very well in terms of mortality, um, uh, we're uh, you know we've had uh, we've had also had a second wave of infection, which is uh, kind of leveling off now with the state's uh, uh, problems with disease reporting. We're kind of still recovering from that, trying to understand exactly what happened. But what I can tell you is that the cases are down. How far down they are, I couldn't quite tell you right now, uh, but they are down. Santa Clara itself has had over 15,000 cases and 224 deaths. Um, at a, if you look back over the last two weeks, um, there have been 208 cases per 100,000 in Santa Clara, which is about double the state, what the state's looking for for reopening. Um, there are the, the seven-day totals are 180 cases and 2.1 deaths, and, and Santa Clara has consistently run at about 1.5% mortality rate, which, I, which bespeaks the skilled um, intensive care uh, and medical care systems in Santa Clara. And currently there are um, 41, 45 patients in ICUs and 110 in non-ICU beds uh, countywide. So, as a county, as Santa Clara, which in many ways led the nation in response to um, the epidemic, is doing is doing okay, um, and maybe not quite as well as San Francisco, uh, better than Alameda, better than San Mateo, um, and you know, and uh, the Bay Area as a whole is doing better than the rest of the state. Um, so I think we're okay, uh, not great, and we're going to have to see. What happens with school reopenings? I'm concerned that the third wave of the epidemic will involve uh, middle schools, high schools, and colleges. Now, in Santa Clara, you've taken off both Stanford and San Jose State offline. I'm not not clear what's happening with Santa Clara, uh, but it, uh, at least uh, two of the big undergraduate institutions are not going to have in-person classes this fall. So that removes the potential for a lot of transmission which we saw very clearly at Notre Dame, University of North Carolina, Michigan State last week. So I'll stop there and not drone on, but I think well, we're, thanks, as, thanks. As, as, as a whole, is doing it. Thank you, Dr. It, it, it's, I guess, um, 
the next question I would ask just just briefly before I ask you sort of about the future six months, a year, two years, is so looking back now over the last six months here in the Bay Area, what have we learned about you know what what to do, what not to do? What's the you know part of the challenge was that uh, you know I, as I say to people, it's a novel coronavirus, which in my understanding means it's a new thing, and so people were largely uh, learning as they went uh, and trying to manage all this. What have we learned over the last six months? What do we know now? What should we keep top of mind as we face managing this in the months ahead? I, th I think uh, you know. I think what we've learned is that is that these kinds of draconian shutdowns can work in terms of decreasing transmission, uh, but if you let them up too quickly and people aren't paying attention to masking, social distancing, all those kinds of things that you can get it back just as, as bad as it was uh, before, if not worse. I think from a, uh, you know, kind of if we had to do this again sort of standpoint, uh, I think uh, uh, I would push for a lot, uh, a lot more early surveillance, a lot more testing. Uh, if you recall, there was a lot of restriction on testing in February and, and March um, and trying to re restrict it to people who've been in China, for instance. I think that was clearly a mistake. As you know, the first fatality in the United States was in uh, Santa Clara County. And I think all that stuff would have been picked up a lot earlier if testing had been more widely available. Thank you, Doctor. I, I think you know I have been push, push, pushing on the testing front. And um, I, I see some progress, but you know, still some challenges, clearly some impediments. But I'm hoping that uh, technology and development will move quickly enough and receive uh, required federal government sign-off quickly enough that we can bring some of these new tools uh, into the effort. Are you seeing that happening uh, from your vantage point as someone who's dealing with these issues around the Bay Area and the state? It's so far a lot of talk. It's it's a lot of talk, no action. But the, I feel like the action is going to happen here in the next week or two um, to bring really bring online much more aggressive testing programs that would involve everything from uh, testing of saliva so you don't have to do nasopharyngeal swabs, mail-in specimens, all sorts of things. I think the technology is really taking off and we're poised to uh, take advantage of it. So I think that's good news. Got it. So let me ask a question now. As someone who's been in this field uh, for decades now, doctor, if if you were trying to think what's what's life going to be like for us all for the next six months, a year, uh, two years. I know here at the county where we have uh, 20,000 employees, our county executive has issued notice to uh, every member of the uh, workforce that uh, the expectation is that we'll be sort of uh, working remotely and uh, trying to manage this at least through the end of February, six months from now. Uh, and, of course, the phrase at least means uh, quite possibly, if not probably, longer. What's, what's your take? Are we all still going to be wearing masks six months from now? Will we still be social distancing? Will, yeah, will, will sure. we be able to, you know, uh, let a grandparent hug their grandkid if that's, you know, is that is that going to be safe? What do you think? Well, let me start with the latter one. The Swiss government has actually issued a, an opinion that says it's okay for grandparents to hug their grandchildren. And having held my two-year-old granddaughter in my lap yesterday and have her squirm all over me, um, I, I think that's probably okay. Um, the, uh, 
where we're going to be six months from now is exactly where we are today because of the vaccine, hopefully, which will be available in December, is going to take a long time to roll out. Okay? Can't just sort of say, okay, here's a vaccine. Presto, everybody's immunized. Let's go. It, yeah, first of all, you're going to need two doses, 28 days apart. So it's going to take, if everybody got, even if everybody got vaccinated on January 1st, they'd all have to be revaccinated on February 1st in order to be protected. So that's something to bear in mind. It will take a long time to get 40 million people vaccinated in the state, and that's assuming that we even have the uh, the supplies to do it. Um, I, I think that we're probably looking at something like this time next year to have that maybe earlier, hopefully earlier, that we'll have um, uh, immunizations firmly in place and have enough people immunized to achieve something approaching herd immunity, which means about 70% of people are, are immune to the virus. So, Doctor, let me ask you a couple of questions because you've, you've given us a lot to work on in just a few sentences there. The first is, does that mean that in your judgment and experience, um, until and unless we've got a vaccine, uh, we're still going to be in a world of hurt, both from a healthcare standpoint and in terms of reopening our economy or opening it up more robustly? I, I th well, that's are, those are kind of different questions. What I can tell you is, we're not going to get, unless you live in San Quentin, we're not going to get to herd immunity in California. Um, San Quentin continued to have transmission up until about 70% of the inmate population was infected. And I think that more than anything else tells you kind of where herd immunity lies. Um, we have made a choice as a society to try and uh, protect the um, protect people who are at greater risk of, uh, of severe consequences, which are basically people over 65. Um, uh, at the by trying to slow slow the economy down and slow social we're trying to slow down is social mixing. Um, so yeah, I think we're probably going to be in the same boat until at least until the first of the year, and then as people get immunized to gradually come out of it. Hopefully, we'll have have some a little bit better understanding of naturally acquired immunity by then, as well, and so the people who have gotten infected which isn't a lot of people in California. I mean, in Northern California, as a proportion of the population, it might be a couple of percent. Um, but, you know, maybe they actually have protective antibodies and can, um, and can you know, sort of reenter the workforce fully like people who are immunized uh, can. But I think and we're going to have to take a while to get there, yeah. And, and Doctor, you, you, you laid that out um, with some sense that, you feel anywhere from optimistic to confident that we really will have a vaccine on something like that timeline. Do you do you feel that that's that that's something you can say with uh, you know uh, some measure of confidence? What do you think? I know you want short answers, but <laughs> there's no short answer to this one. What I can tell you is what Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, the head of NIH, say, and they hold the data in their hands every day, and I don't. And I think they're quite confident that they're going to have something by the first of the year. Now, having said that, um, the trials are all designed to be done by next summer. So I think that's even that. So that's a pessimistic look. So it's somewhere between, you know, January and June 30th. Um, I think we'll have a commercially available vaccine available in sufficient quantity that we can start to really immunize people. Got it. Got it. And. Um, 
and then uh, that means that, uh, as you said, uh, even once we get to that uh, better place, it, it takes time to roll out the vaccination and for it to do its good work, yes? Well, no, it's just to get enough people vaccinated that you can Got actually it. stop. Yeah. All right. Well, let me let me say thank you for, for now. We're going to keep you with us, uh, of course. Uh, thank you because we have lots of questions I know that are already starting to come in. And again, if you'd like to ask a question, just press star three at any time during the call. Uh, we uh, already have a number of questions, but we're hoping to get uh, uh, more. And so go to star three uh, at any time and uh, we'll connect you with someone who can help take your question. Now, before we go to our next guest, uh, Greta Hansen, uh, I do want to uh, repeat, uh, reprise, if you will, the poll question that we have been asking uh, for the last half dozen months. And it's been uh, interesting to me to see how uh, folks' uh, concerns have changed over time. And, uh, you know, want to fully acknowledge that uh, we're hardly a scientific sample, but we've got thousands of people on the call. And so uh, I do want to ask those who'd like to respond to give us a sense of what is uh, your greatest concern about uh, COVID the COVID-19 outbreak. And uh, not to worry, I'm going to go through these twice. If you're most concerned about elderly and at-risk relatives and friends, uh, then I'm going to ask you to press 1. If you're most concerned about the ability of our hospitals and our healthcare system and staff to uh, respond to the outbreak and to keep up without being overwhelmed, I'm going to ask you to press 2. If you're most concerned about the loss of jobs and the effect this is having on the economy, including our small businesses, I'm going to ask you to press 3. And if you're most concerned about the ability of our students, uh, you know, both K-12 and higher education, as Dr. Rutherford mentioned, to receive an adequate education uh, while they're either closed or using distance learning, then I'm going to ask you to press 4. So again, four choices. Uh, press 1 if your greatest concern among the four uh, is uh, about the health of uh, at-risk friends, relatives, and colleagues, including the elderly. Press 2 if you're most concerned about the ability of our healthcare system, our hospitals, and our medical staffs to respond to the outbreak and to keep up without being overwhelmed. Press 3 if you're concerned most about loss of jobs and the economy. And uh, press 4 if you are most concerned about uh, the ability of students to get the education they need while our schools and universities are either closed or using distance learning. And we'll share the results with you in just a little bit. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. All right, that uh, means we are now going to turn to our second guest today. And as I mentioned earlier, that is uh, Ms. Greta Hansen, who is uh, the uh, representative today from our county counsel's office. That's the county's legal office. She's the chief assistant county counsel, which essentially means she's second in command there for an office with about uh, 200 plus folks, including uh, roughly 100 attorneys or so. Uh, and uh, in addition to which, uh, she is at our EOC, our Emergency Operations Center, uh, on a regular basis and has a, a really a day-to-day, -day, uh, hands-on uh, experience with uh, trying to manage the crisis here in our county. So we uh, welcome her, thank her for being with us. I believe she's on the line from the EOC even as we speak. So uh, let me just uh, ask uh, um, uh, Greta Hansen after saying thank you again for joining us. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, uh, let me first say, uh, Ms. Hansen, welcome for being w welcome, and thank you for being with us. I uh, want to make sure we still have you with us. I'm here. Thank you. Thank you. Let me let me just mention, uh, 
Dr. Rutherford mentioned the importance of testing earlier, and uh, I know you know that I've been um, an advocate for uh, stepped-up testing. Um, let me let me just ask, uh, where are we on testing? Have we made progress? And uh, could you just share with us again uh, why it's important in terms of uh, the ability to isolate and or quarantine folks uh, who've been identified? Let's start start there. How are we doing? I think we're doing a lot better, but just as Dr. Rutherford said, I think we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, just to your your last comment about how, how important is testing, it's absolutely critical. Going back to the time period that Dr. Rutherford mentioned in February um, when our, our public health officials felt truly blind because the federal government um, and other actors had uh, not made available nearly the level of testing we needed at that time. Um, we're still, unfortunately, in a position where we feel like we don't have nearly the level of testing resources that we'd like. Um, that said, our county organization has stepped up hugely and made tremendous progress, really carried the water for the entire um, healthcare delivery system across our region in standing up much more massive testing infrastructure than any other um, portion of the healthcare delivery system. Just uh, this past week, we stood up what is now the single largest um, testing location in Northern California at the Santa Clara County Fairgrounds, which um, is already at capacity to test 1,000 um, people a day, and we'll soon be able to test approximately 5,000 people a day. And so our primary focus now that we've built um, quite massive testing infrastructure uh, through our county's health and hospital system is to really push the other um, healthcare providers in our community to do likewise um, and to thereby uh, meet the full um, demand for testing that we have as a community to make sure that we're quickly identifying cases of COVID-19 and containing them. Thank you. I, Ms. Hansen, I, when people ask me why, uh, why is testing so important, I tell them that there are at least a few reasons. One is that um, we you know, can't make smart decisions or our public health officer who is the person who's empowered to make these decisions that she can't make uh, smart decisions if we don't have good data countywide. Uh, number two, that uh, in terms of uh, the health of county residents, that as you point out, we, we can't uh, get folks isolated or quarantined and stop the spread if we don't know who has uh, COVID. And uh, that's sort of uh, reason number two. And reason number three is we can't get um, the economy back uh, to uh, full throttle until and unless we know that it's safe for people to go into the workplace, both in terms of uh, their interaction with their colleagues and with uh, the general public. And then the last thing I mentioned to Dr. Uh, Rutherford, as you heard earlier, is just you know families who would like to be together are currently feeling like you know different households of extended families get together, they're putting one another at risk. Is is have I have I missed anything or uh, or, or and and or misstated anything? Because for all of those things, it seems to me you need to do uh, testing and then the follow up contact tracing where we track down who's been in uh, touch with who or who. How am I doing? Uh, that's yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and another um, thing I would add is where you don't have really robust testing infrastructure to identify exactly where the virus is and who's 
who it's being transmitted to at any particular time, then you're left resorting to the much blunter um, containment measures like we saw um, around the, the pretty sweeping shelter in place um, measures that we had and, and even the pretty expansive um, uh, requirements that we have in place under the current state order and to a lesser extent our, our, our local order at this juncture. And so the, the, the better we are at identifying exactly who has COVID and making sure that those folks um, can, can make sure they aren't spreading it to others, uh, the less we need to resort to those very disruptive um, broader mechanisms uh, that we've used over these last few months. Got it. Thank you. Well, uh, I, I know that's something everybody, of course, would like to see. You mentioned in uh, passing uh, the fact that uh, there was a public health order from our uh, public health officer uh, uh, June the 10th, I think. In fact, I'm, I'm pulling the piece of paper out of my packet here right now uh, that uh, requires all healthcare facilities in the county to provide diagnostic testing. And uh, Ms. Hanson, I'm, I'm looking at uh, the order, and essentially, it's uh, if you're a healthcare provider, I'm thinking of uh, Kaiser, for example, or uh, Sutter Health with Palo Alto Medical Foundation. If you're a healthcare provider, you are obliged by this order, you are required to provide testing certainly to anyone who is symptomatic, meaning has symptoms, but also anyone who's been exposed to a confirmed case of COVID. And uh, anyone who's at increased risk because they may have been working in a high-risk setting or frequently traveling by mass transit or have uh, ended up at some sort of a mass gathering. And, uh, I mean, we're talking about uh, people who, you know, could be first responders. They could be pharmacy employees, food service workers, delivery workers, uh, grocery store clerks. Uh, am, I, uh, am I correct in understanding that if, you fall into any of those three categories, someone who's uh, either symptomatic or been exposed or is just at increased risk uh, by uh, the terms of the order that you're entitled now uh, to say to your health care provider like Kaiser or Sutter Pamp that, you know, I want to test, yes? Yes, that's exactly right. Just as you would go to those healthcare providers if you needed um, TB testing or testing for other communicable diseases, uh, that is now a requirement imposed by our health officer on those healthcare provider organizations, and they should be offering testing uh, readily without any significant barriers and, and rapidly to anyone in those categories. Well, let me put you on the spot a little bit and ask, is that happening? Uh, those healthcare delivery organizations say that that's happening. We're certainly hearing reports that it's not, and um, we are in conversation with each of them about coming into compliance, uh, but we certainly also hope that their members will be reaching out to them and making sure that they do, in fact, have the level of access to testing that they should expect from each of those organizations. Well, if, if folks are... Um uh, are not getting that uh, accommodation as required by law. Uh, I know um, uh, the Board of Supervisors recently passed some uh, passed an urgency ordinance to allow for enforcement, not just of this, but of all of the various public health orders. Uh, my recollection is that uh, the way the law works in the absence of such an ordinance is that otherwise the only way you can enforce a public health order is through a, a, a criminal complaint, am I remembering that right? That's correct. Yeah, which is which I gather 
uh, pretty much everyone concluded is not a very useful tool because you really don't want to make healthcare uh, uh, compliance a, a criminal matter. Uh, was that the thinking in bringing uh, a, a more, I'll call it, uh, flexible uh, enforcement ordinance to the board? I know you and your colleagues were in the county council's office were uh, part of this conversation. That's right, and I think um, for folks who are maybe not as familiar with this framework, the analogy that might help understand it is, um, as as you know, Supervisor, we in the county um, broadly enforce um, rules and requirements for the safe and sanitary operation of food facilities, including restaurants, and where food facilities are not complying with the safety regulations um, or other requirements imposed on them by state law or locally. Um, we have the ability to issue fines and to direct them to come into compliance. And so through the ordinance you were just mentioning, we now have that broader um, enforcement infrastructure in place for all of our COVID-related public health officer orders so that we have the ability to issue fines on, on any business um, that may not be complying with the requirements of the state health officer order as well as our local health officers directives and orders. And uh, because I get asked all the time, what are you hearing about masks and mask wearing uh, um, uh, in terms of all this, Ms. Hansen? We're, we're hearing um, both both good and bad news. I think that um, certainly across uh, certain sectors, um, we're seeing good masking compliance and increasing masking compliance. It's starting to sink in as the new normal. Um, and we're also seeing some of our businesses really stepping up to gently um, ensure, um, gently but firmly ensure that absolutely anyone entering their facility is masked, that all their employees are masked, but we know we still have much more work to do on that front and um, and we're, we're ready to do it. We have not only um, the enforcement structure that we were talking about, but also a lot of um, community workers who are putting, being put into action to give gentle reminders, resources, make sure people understand the why behind the masking, um, where there are segments of our community where that understanding uh, really hasn't sunk in. But absolutely, we need to see complete masking um, whenever anyone's entering a facility and whenever anyone's in close proximity with others outside their household um, when outside so that we can reduce transmission um, while we're in this phase that our, our other tools are pretty limited. And uh, Ms. Hanson, I, I want to ask you just two questions before we share the full results and then get on to questions from our uh, callers today. The, the, I want to focus again, as I did with Dr. Rutherford on, from your vantage point uh, at the Emergency Operations Center, what do you think life looks like six months, a year, two years from now? I know I'm, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, and I should stipulate to that. And, uh, you know, no, no one knows for sure, but... Uh, your understanding, are, are you thinking that you're um, going to be with us for a while and we're going to have to manage it uh, for many months to come? Yeah? We certainly are. And I would just add that, um, you know, a big focus of messaging from our health officer has been that we really do need to adapt to the presence of COVID in our communities, figure out ways to resume activities that we need to resume safely while COVID is still circulating in the community and, and figuring out how to innovate 
to create the safety mechanisms and protocols we need to have in place to do things like educate the children in our community while ensuring that we're not accelerating COVID transmission is our challenge and our charge and something that we all need to be um, singularly focused on. And, and we here in the Emergency Operations Center are planning for that um, while also uh, making sure we have in place the infrastructure needed to quickly uh, mobilize if and when we do have a vaccine um, and, and when we can um, put ourselves in a position where we can go back to um, something slightly more akin to, to the way we were operating prior to COVID. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, before I uh, share the poll results and also then go to questions, I do want to just shift slightly and say I know there at the EOC uh, you all are also now uh, confronting the wildfire challenge. Anything you uh, think it would be helpful to share with Santa Clara County residents who are on the line? Uh, I know uh, folks in San Mateo County and uh, Santa Cruz County uh, are, uh, are really taking a hit, uh, but how about here in Santa Clara County where our listeners and callers are uh, likely to be most directly uh, affected and interested? I'm happy to speak to that a bit. Um... So I am here in our emergency operations center where we are getting constant reports on the status of the fires burning both in the eastern portion of our own county and then just adjacent to us in Santa Cruz and San Mateo counties. And um, for your district, of course, that latter fire is the one closest to home. Um, I would say that folks, particularly those living uh, adjacent to the Santa Cruz and San Mateo County um, borders on, on the hillside of the valley should definitely be paying close attention to all of the emergency updates uh, coming out of CAL FIRE from the CZU August FIRE team and, um, and also uh, thinking through and preparing themselves for this or any other emergency that might require um, any form of evacuation. We don't have any evacuation orders or warnings in place at this moment for any portion of, of our western county, but it is a good moment to think through all of your emergency preparedness plans, to think through um, putting together the, the go bags that our emergency preparedness folks um, tell us we should all have at the ready, and to make sure that um, any friends and loved ones that you have in Santa Cruz and San Mateo counties um, are, are safe and accounted for. All right. Thank you for that update. Let me uh, now share the results of the poll today and, uh, again, acknowledge uh, not a scientific sample, uh, but um, just helpful uh, in my office to get a sense for uh, what people's understanding and concern is. Uh, uh, this uh, round of questions we got um, 42% said they were uh, primarily concerned, uh, most concerned about uh, at-risk relatives and friends, and 13% said they were most concerned about the ability of our healthcare system, our hospitals and staffs to keep up with the challenge. 28% uh, expressed a greatest degree of concern uh, about uh, jobs and the economy, and 17% uh, uh, expressed the greatest degree of concern about uh, education and the ability of our uh, kids to get the education that they need uh, while we're uh, looking at either remote learning or have some institutions shut down altogether. Uh, so uh, thank you for that. The 
the numbers uh, do seem to change from month to month as we ask this uh, same question to get a sense of what people are most anxious about, in part based on the changes in the uh, surrounding environment, which as we've discussed is, uh, I think, um, part of the challenge that everyone's having uh, working through the uh, seemingly ever-changing landscape of COVID. So uh, thank you again to all who have called with questions. Again, if you have a question, simply press star three. And I'm going to go to some of those questions now. And if your question is uh, from a live call, uh, as opposed to uh, one that came in online, uh, I will uh, mention your first name and your city. And uh, we will go to you and let you ask it directly. And I'll try and uh, direct it to either Dr. Rutherford or uh, Ms. Hansen, depending on the nature of the question. So um, Jean from Los Altos, Jean from Los Altos, uh, has a question about folks' uh, immunity and folks who had the virus and recovered. So let me see if she's uh, on the line. Jean, are you still with us? And would you like to ask your question directly? Well, I'm wondering whether people who have had the virus are then immune to getting it again. Thank you for the question, Jean. Dr. Rutherford, uh, this question keeps coming up over and over again. Certainly in the early days, the response was, we just don't know yet. Uh, how much more, uh, if anything, do we know today about uh, that question? Uh, here and I was thinking that was a legal question. No, um, let me, so, so the answer is that we continue to not really know exactly, but let me tell you a really interesting story that came out last week. There was a large U.S. commercial fishing vessel from Seattle that uh, put to sea about uh, three weeks ago. And before they put to sea, they screened 120 of 122 people on the vessel uh, for, uh, for infection, but also uh, got antibody titers on people uh, as well or had, had blood so they could run antibodies. There was a large outbreak on the ship with 86% of the crew uh, infected. Uh, and when they came back to port, they ran the, uh, ran the bloods that they had for people who didn't get infected. And lo and behold, there were three people who had, uh, they ran all the bloods, there were three people who had neutralizing antibodies before they departed on the voyage, and none of them got the infection. So it was zero out of three with neutralizing antibody versus, uh, at least if I got the numbers right, 117, I got 104 out of 117 without neutralizing antibodies. So that's a real kind of important point. Now, it may not be the neutralizing antibody per se. It may be the neutralizing antibodies or a proxy for something else. But still, that would say that if you have neutralizing antibody, you're going to have some degree of protection, at least here in the short term. Now, uh, I realize I'm using the term neutralizing antibody which is a subtype of antibody that's directed very specifically to the piece of the virus that locks onto the cell receptor. Um, but it's probably about 70% of people have some amount of neutralizing antibody. Um, and so I think we can uh, expect um, there to be some immunity among people who actually, um, who've, had the, who've had the, among most people who've had the infection. And if you're donating plasma, you definitely have neutralizing antibody because that's what they're trying to harvest. So, Dr. Rutherford, to take um, that uh, very precise medical answer and uh, uh, translate it into to layman's language, if I may, 
still too soon to speak with absolute certainty, but uh, inclination is and uh, encouraging signs are there that uh, folks who've had the virus and recovered uh, may then be protected. Is that a fair layman's summary? Uh, let me let me add one proviso for a while. Got we, it. we don't know no, how long. That's, it, a, that's a very it, important proviso. So thank you. Uh, next, I got a pair. Of, thank you. Sorry for uh, talking over you here. We have a that's pair good. of questions, and what I'm going to do is uh, go to um, first uh, Marlene in Palo Alto, and then to Betty in Mountain View, because they both have questions about uh, vaccine. And that are related. So, uh, and uh, whether or not it would be mandatory, and what about folks who don't want to take it? So, let me start with you, Marlene, in Palo Alto, if you're still on the line. She is not, apparently, uh, but her question basically was Will uh, the vaccine be mandatory, meaning would people be required to be vaccinated? And then let me go to Betty in Mountain View, who I think is still on the line, and let Betty ask her question. Betty? Uh, yes, this is Betty Menor. Um my question is, if a vaccine should become available, what do you say to those who refuse to take the vaccine? So thank you, Betty, for the question. And uh, as I say, the earlier question from Marlene was basically about whether or not uh, vaccination uh, could or would be mandatory. Let me, uh, so we've got both a, a healthcare uh, question and a legal question, I think, embedded there. Uh, who'd like to start? Dr. Rutherford, Ms. Hansen, don't all jump at once. I can do it. Sure. Great. Um, I, I think that the, you know, we as a society have mandated vaccination for any number of things. Uh, and I can tell you, if you're a healthcare worker and want to work in a hospital, you're absolutely going to have to get vaccinated. If you're a student and want to go to school, you're going to absolutely have to get vaccinated. Uh, the rest of the population, we probably would let coast. Um, but, um, you know, as a, as a society, uh, if we believe that herd immunity exists at about 70%, which is what the San Quentin outbreak would suggest, and we have a vaccine that has, let's just say it's, you know, 80, 90%, let's say it's 90% effective just for round numbers. That doesn't make quite round numbers. Uh, but we need to have about 70, 70 uh, I'm sorry, we need to have about 77% of the population vaccinated with a 10% failure rate to achieve herd immunity at 70%. That's what we need to have. Without that, we might as well just, you know, we might as well not, we might as well not be doing it, frankly. It's not, it's going to protect the individuals who are vaccinated, but the virus will continue to circulate and will continue to see fatalities among unvaccinated elderly people. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, Ms. Hanson, anything to add there? No, I don't think um, I have anything to add other than to say, you know, of course we have to see exactly how things play out with the vaccine, but I think um, a, a critical component of getting vaccination rates to the level that we'll need will obviously be not only robust infrastructure to offer the vaccine to folks, but also to educate them about um, the vaccine's safety, the benefits of mass vaccination, et cetera. And so um, that will be a critical component of what we're planning for as well. All right. We have a question from, I believe it's Marlene and Campbell, uh, about the uh, tension between healthcare and economic considerations. Let me see if Marlene is still on the line. She's not, but I think her question is uh, uh, reflective of a, 
question I get a lot from uh, my constituents, which is uh, the way she phrases it uh, is at what point do we choose between the virus and the economy? And let me go to uh, Ms. Hansen on this. I, I know it's not, uh, it calls for some uh, judgment uh, about trade offs, but Ms. Hansen, how do you see the tension between uh, opening up for the economy and uh, keeping things a little tighter uh, because of the healthcare considerations? How does that play out in your work? Well, I think certainly the holistic consequences of all of the um, public health orders and regulations that have been imposed are absolutely top of mind by the public health officials here locally and the entire team working as part of the COVID response and trying to strike that right balance. But I think the most um, overarching thing that I would share is that I think it's become clearer and clearer how inextricably linked um, the health of our economy is with our ability to contain COVID where we've um, tried to, where, where there's been a tendency to reopen the economy faster um, to address some of those economic concerns. We've then seen a resurgence of the virus that then puts us right back where we were, um, notwithstanding the tremendous uh, economic and other sacrifices that had come before. And so my hope is that um, there's a growing understanding that we must contain COVID in order to protect not only the um, the physical health of our population, but also the economic well-being of our population. And I think there's there's greater and greater understanding there. But um, but these are really painful, difficult trade-offs. And um, you know, there's there's no question that the ramifications of the economic crisis globally caused by COVID um, are, are crippling and, and present other harms um, that are equally and sometimes even more impactful in people's lives. But um, but we must must get our arms around this virus in order to to keep people safe um, and well, both both health wise and economically. Well, thank you. I've got a pair of questions here. Uh, that I'd like to ask about uh, uh, medical issues, or I'd like to let our questioners, uh, callers ask about uh, medical issues. So I'll go to Dr. Rutherford with these. I, I don't know if uh, Singh is still with us from Saratoga, uh, but uh, there's a question about folks who have the virus and then recover. And then following that question, I'd like to go to Christine in Palo Alto, uh, who has a question about folks who get the virus and uh, whether or not they can get it again. So. Let me see if Singh is with us in Saratoga. Not, apparently, but uh, the question there was, if somebody recovers, are they uh, still a carrier that can spread COVID? So if you've had COVID and uh, you recover, are you still contagious, basically, was the question from Singh in Saratoga. And then let me go to Christine in Palo Alto uh, to see if uh, Christine can uh, join us and ask her question directly. Christine? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm here. I think my question has been answered. Mine was about, are you still a carrier if you've had the virus and have recovered? And I'm not sure that we know that. And, uh, if and you're a carrier. Go ahead, Dr. Rutherford. Let me reassure you. You are absolutely not a carrier. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You are only infectious for about three days in the course of this illness unless you're in the ICU and have your lungs instrumented and all sorts of stuff like that. And then it's only a little bit longer. Um, 
people who have, uh, you know, this test we do with the nose called polymerase chain reaction, we're trying to detect RNA. That doesn't detect whether the virus, whether virus is alive or not. Um, it only detects fragments of the virus. And so you can have uh, a positive uh, nasal test um, for long periods of time after you've recovered. That does not mean that you're infectious, and that does, that does not mean the virus is replicating. So let me assure you that there's no carrier state, and that you're um, once you're on the other side of the, you know, you know once you're out three or four days, maximum maybe eight days, after you've had symptoms, you're no longer shedding a virus that can infect other people. Thank you, doctor. And the follow-up question was, if someone had the virus, can they get it again? Uh, we're still looking for that, and the answer is probably yes, but we haven't found a case yet. That's because the, you know, the immunity is probably, you know, we think, as I said earlier, that the immunity is relatively short-lived on the order of four to five months. Uh, so we're starting, we're thinking that we're going to see, start seeing a, a true reinfection here at some point in time. We have not seen it yet. There are reports of people whose tests are negative, and then they turn positive, and then they turn negative again. Those are people who are being tested really at the very far edge of, of, of being able to detect any piece of viral RNA at all. Um, and that's just sort of some days it's positive and some days it's not. It's not. It doesn't mean they're infectious. It doesn't mean they've been reinfected. All right. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, let me go now uh, first to Ms. Hansen, uh, and, uh, but then also to you, uh, Dr. Rutherford, uh, with a pair of questions. Let me see if Mark in Palo Alto uh, is still on the line and uh, Margaret from Los Altos. They both have questions about the information uh, that we uh, get and the sources and uh, the quality and reliability. Let me see first. Mark, are you still with us in Palo Alto? And uh, if so, could you tell us what your question is? Uh, yes, uh, you basically got my question. Um, just given some of the turmoil in uh, Washington, um, what are the best sources of reliable data on cases and mortality, uh, I guess, locally and uh, nationwide? And before we go to uh, Ms. Hansen and uh, Dr. Rutherford for that, Margaret in Los Altos, are you still on the line? And if so, what's your question? Uh, yes, yeah, so first I want to thank everybody who's doing this uh, town uh, talk because it makes a lot of difference to us. And by my question is that I'm concerned about the data quality that we're making decisions on. I know it's hard to collect this kind of data, but do they comfortable with the quality that the data that they're looking at. All right. Thank you. So, um, uh, Ms. Hanson, let's start with you, since I know a, an important part of the effort at the EOC has to do with getting the data, processing the data, and then sharing it at the county's webpage. What, what would you tell our callers and our listeners today? Well, I would start by saying there are a number of different data sources that we look at daily that we um, are analyzing constantly to be making some of the critical decisions on our local response to COVID. Um, those include the daily information that we collect from every hospital in the county about the number of patients 
um, hospitalized with COVID, the number of those patients who are in the ICU. We certainly have um, very updated and accurate local data on um, deaths from COVID. Uh, and then the the, the other um, primary data source that we're looking at, amongst other things, is um, the number of newly diagnosed cases. And for that, we have both um, direct access to lab results from all of the testing that's actually performed by the county itself, and then through the state's uh, data surveillance system, CalReady, we have access to all of the testing data that's been performed by other ordering providers and labs um, in our county or for our county patients. Um, and I would say that, uh, you know, folks will recall that over the last couple of weeks there were some significant problems with the state's data feed from CalReady. Those, um, those feed issues have been resolved. They were technical in nature, um, and we're dealing with um, some, an older system of infrastructure that was not designed to handle the volume and pressure um, that the COVID pandemic has put on that system. And so we at the local level are building in um, redundancies for data collection to make sure that if we face another challenge with that state system that we're um, even better prepared than we were. But, um, but we feel much more confident in our understanding of our local data, I think, than many other communities because we've really invested in building um, robust data collection infrastructure um, at the local level. And, and we do feel like even though there are some questions about um, the national picture and sometimes the robustness of that statewide picture that locally um, we have we have our arms around it as best we possibly can, um, given the data that we're in a position to collect. Uh, thank you. And I, I just I noticed we have a question on the web as well from uh, Melody who asked, why are the COVID dashboards no longer accurate? Do you feel like you can um, share with folks the a sure. high confidence level about our county dashboard at this point? Yeah, so I think what the caller is referring to is that as soon as we became aware that there was a problem with the feed we were receiving from the state's CalReady system, we immediately put up notice on our county data dashboards about the fact that there were problems with that state data feed and that folks shouldn't um, misconstrue what were, for a period of time, lower um, reported cases as evidence that the virus was actually no longer circulating in our community at the level it had been. Um, we've been a little bit more cautious than most health departments in saying we think that data quality and feed issue has been fully resolved. We're doing internal auditing, um, taking all of the comprehensive data we get from the, the testing we conduct ourselves, matching that with the information we're, we're obtaining from the CalReady feed, and staying in close communication and consultation with the state to make sure that we're doing a high degree of data quality auditing for those data um, feeds that we're getting from the state. And we wanted to wait to remove some of those uh, warnings that we had on the website until we've completed that full auditing process, which we expect to complete in the next day or two. Thanks. Dr. Rutherford, I know you see the data not, not just from any one county, but uh, from uh, multiple sources. How are you feeling about the accuracy uh, and reliability of the information that's being shared with the public? Uh, <clears throat> sorry. I have a high degree of confidence in it now, especially now that we're on the <clears throat> Sorry, now that we're on the other side of this data glitch, 
um, with the uh, uh, with the state's uh, 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 programs. I think we're in, in you know in good shape. If somebody studies tropical diseases in Africa, where there really are no data, um, we have so much data for this, and we have so many different. We're, we're collecting it from different places and triangulating the data between hospitalizations, hospital days, testing data, case data, mortality data, behavioral data around wearing masks. I, I feel like there's a, a real richness of data that give us a pretty good idea of what's going on. All right. Well, thank you to you both for your answers. And I'll just say to listeners, um, as a, a member of the Board of Supervisors and, <coughs> excuse me, chair of the uh, uh, Health and Hospital Committee, uh, I really have been impressed with the continuing growth and development of our county's uh, dashboard system. Uh, it, it started out as, I thought, a good system, but with potential to improve. That potential has been, I think, more and more uh, realized with every passing day. And, and I have appreciated the fact, frankly, that constructive criticism was heard and that uh, we have right now, I think, a really very good system for communicating an awful lot of complex information in a way that is relatively easy to understand. Um, we can always do more and we can always do it better. So if there are thoughts about how to improve the system, please feel free to share them. You can share them with my office uh, by email and uh, we will uh, pass them along to folks. I have, I have seen the direct impact of uh, folks who have said, what about this, what about that? How can we understand this, that, or the other? And it uh, really is helpful. Lots of questions, and again, if you'd like to ask a question, please uh, press star three. Lots of questions for our, both our panelists about testing, and I'm going to read a couple that are online and then go to a couple that are uh, uh, live. So Sybil uh, uh, online says, are there plans for rapid tests with same-day results? Tor asks, are the saliva rapid results tests viewed as roughly as accurate as the nasal swab tests. And then let me go to uh, both uh, uh, Grace in Palo Alto, if Grace is still on the line, and then um, uh, Charlene in Sunnyvale, and uh, uh, then Robert in uh, Palo Alto, uh, because they all have questions about tests. Grace, are you still with us? Yes, thank you. I wanted to know if there's plans for Santa Clara County to access the low-cost um, saliva paper test for wide distribution in the county? All right, thank you. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Let me go to Charlene in Sunnyvale. Good to Charlene. know what the – yes, this is Charlene. I'm asking what the um, – the um, how accurate the tests are, either the nasal ones or the saliva ones for COVID. Thank you. All right, thanks. Robert in Palo Alto, you also have a testing question. And is Robert still with us? If not, we'll go to Cupertino, where I believe it's pronounced Vigia, and forgive me if I've mispronounced the name, also has a question about tests. All right. Well, the test uh, questions, rather, from uh, Vija and Cupertino were about our other test methods robust enough so we don't get false positives. And Robert in Palo Alto wanted to talk a little bit about antigen testing. So, Dr. Uh, 
Rutherford and uh, Ms. Hansen, lots of questions about testing. Uh, so first, uh, you know, let's talk about what's the reliability of the tests we are currently conducting. And then second, what's coming our way? Let's try it that way. And then third, uh, what is this talk about antigen testing, which um, has been on and off the uh, radar for a while now? So how about the accuracy of our current testing? <clears throat> so the, um, I, I'm assuming this isn't a legal question, so I'll take it. Um, the, the accurate, our current testing is uh, the molecular, the, the, the test techniques that we use to detect viral RNA are highly specific and highly accurate. Now, having said that, um, there is a, you go through a period of time when you shed no virus, then you shed a lot of virus, and, and the, you create a lot of viral RNA because it's replicating, and then you go through this long tail of, um, of uh, having some RNA hanging around, even though the virus is not replicating. Uh, so the, the, the way to think about it is that all the tests are actually very good for detecting the period of peak viral load, when you have the most virus, the most RNA, and are the most infectious. They're all good for that. They're, they're, they differ in their abilities to detect these sort of long trailing um, periods where you can detect, where some of the most accurate ones can detect RNA. We tend to think of that as fairly useless, um, by the way, that characteristic. And we're really worried about people who are kind of in their sort of the week between initial infection and, you know, in that first week of, of following infection. So that's the, that, that, you know, so that's the, that's the point. You hear about people having false negative tests and then turning positive the next day. That's because the tests don't turn positive for the first three days after you become infected. You need to have the virus build up for three days before you can actually detect it. So with those provisos, they're all, you know, the, the molecular techniques that we use in polymerase chain reaction are all very accurate, but you've got to get the virus at the right time and you've got to get a real specimen, okay? So if, if someone, like, looks, you know, you're supposed to do a self-collected nasal swab and you sort of twiddle the swab around in the air and stick it in the tube. It's not going to detect anything, hopefully. Um, so you got to have, you know, it's a, it's a function of kind of the mechanics of collecting it and the timing of collecting it. That having right. been said, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that having been said, you read my mind. So uh, that having been said, where does that take us? That takes us to the, um, there are a million different platforms uh, for, de for detecting the RNA. Some you can do fast, some take longer, some you can pool together, some may actually be point of care testing. You know, there are a bunch of different things, but they're all looking for the same thing, which is the viral RNA. So we had a number of questions, though, about whether or not uh, we could look forward uh, to uh, a test that was uh, uh, both uh, easier, more accessible, faster turnaround. Uh, what's your expectation there? Yes. How's that okay. for a short answer? <laughs> All right. And, and let me go our, 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 our exemplar is home pregnancy test. Okay. That's what we're trying to. So we're, we're, we're in, in your view, we're, we're trying to get to something that's comparable in terms of uh, accessibility, ease of use, uh, and quick results. Yeah. 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 All right. Ms. Hansen, what are you hearing since I know you're a big part of 
<clears throat> standing up this testing uh, program. Uh, uh, is there more on the way, uh, different, better, faster? What do you think? Yes, I do think there's more on the way. And to speak to a couple of the issues raised in the questions um, that were just posed. So first, um, as a county, we have made sure that our turnaround on our testing is as rapid as you can get with the current um, PCR type infrastructure that Dr. Rutherford was 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 just speaking to. So, um, as a as a county and as a as a county uh, health and hospital system, we've got our testing turnaround from from specimen collection to result um, down well below the average of of most of the labs and other providers um, to about two one to two days right now. Um, but I hope and think that we will also be able to, over the coming months, um, get that even faster as newer and newer technology comes online. Uh, we, as, as many of your listeners will know, um, were among the first to adopt pool testing to be able to expand the number of people that we were able to test while also keeping the accuracy of our testing really high. And so that's been um, very successful. And then we are carefully monitoring and engaged in conversation with um, folks who are in the process of developing and rolling out antigen testing, which is um, is what was referred to with the, the little strips that you can um, use to test uh, your saliva that um, at least have the promise of delivering inexpensive, really fast, really expansive testing capacity. So that's that's not here yet, but it's something that we're actively monitoring, ready to engage with the moment that it becomes a available and viable option for uh, much larger scale, rapid, accurate testing. All right. Thank you both. Uh, I want to go next to uh, Andy in Palo Alto, who has a question about uh, contact tracing. Andy, are you still with us on the call? Yes, I am. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask what the status of the contact tracing program is and whether you're satisfied with the work that Haluna Health is doing to manage that program. All right. Thank you for that question. And let me also go to, I believe it's Sarik, uh, or Sarik, it, forgive me uh, for the pronunciation error, if any, uh, at Stanford, uh, who also has a question about uh, contact tracing. Sarik, are you still with us? Uh, hi, yeah, this is Sarek. Um, I had a question about if there were any efforts to try to develop some sort of app or other technology to help contact tracing, especially since we're in Silicon Valley. seems like there should be a lot of ability to do that. Thank you so much for the questions. Let me start with Ms. Hansen on our uh, contact tracing efforts because that is a county because that is a county uh, function, and uh, also uh, let her. Uh, share uh, any uh, information she might have about uh, technological approaches to contact tracing. And then I'll ask Dr. Rutherford about uh, the use of technology in this process as well. So let me start with you, Ms. Hansen. Sure. So to the caller who asked about the status of our contact tracing efforts, at present we have about 1,000 contact tracers who are part of our program. They're, they are comprised by a mix of um, county staff, state staff that the state has uh, deployed to partner with the county in its contact tracing and volunteers. Um, the caller mentioned Haluna Health, which is a um, organization that's been um, a part of the California public health landscape for many years, um, primarily before the COVID era, 
helping um, stand up uh, short-term grant-funded workforces for the state of California's public health department and local public health departments, and who's um, partnered uh, with the county under contract to, to provide um, certain infrastructure to help stand up our contact tracing efforts. I would say that um, we, like other uh, local um, health departments, have had a tremendous challenge in trying to stand up really massive infrastructure for case and contact investigation um, on an unprecedented scale. A thousand staff members um, for case and contact investigation is much larger than our county public health department. Um, so there have been challenges there, but we now have um, a fully trained workforce. Uh, many of the, the kinks um, have been or are finally being worked out, and I think a lot of the barriers that our, our contact tracers have faced are now in the form of just some of the turnaround time on the testing, on making sure um, that the state uh, contact tracing uh, system that we utilize is uh, able to meet the, the demands of the pandemic. And so um, I think that it, it's it's in working order and it's getting better by the day, and it's certainly um, now of a size where it can handle the volume of cases that we're seeing come in day by day. But I also expect that um, the, the kinks that, of course, a, a brand new system um, will have are going to continue to be worked out and refined. Um, and excuse the interruption. I just I sure. do want to you were specific about um, – the fact that you feel like we have the number of folks on board that we need to handle a current caseload, how are you feeling about the need to manage uh, a larger caseload? Should that uh, be necessary as a result of some new surge in numbers? I think that we've built um, the right capacity both for our current needs plus um, what we expect would be a surge near term. We're continuing to um, refine our assessments of the number of staff we need, and our staff, um, as they get more time um, in these roles, are also getting faster in their ability to process those cases better and their ability to elicit quickly all the contacts that the persons that they're in touch with um, have had. And so uh, I think we're in good shape for now, and we're also planning for um, what could be an even further surge and assessing the staffing level so we can make sure we're always ahead of the level of staffing that we need to meet that demand. Got it. And for those listeners who are not familiar with this uh, exercise or enterprise, uh, what we're talking about here is the a team of folks who, once someone has been identified as having COVID, goes to work to identify who their contacts have been and make sure that uh, not only does the person with COVID isolate uh, himself, but uh, that their contacts uh, are identified as quickly as possible for quarantine as well. And that's why so many folks are uh, involved in the process. Dr. Rutherford, uh, the follow-up question, as you heard, was about the extent to which technology can be employed uh, and uh, whether or not there's an app for that. Uh, and um, what's, your, what's your take? I ask you because I know you're looking at these issues uh, well beyond uh, any one county. Yeah, sure. So it's a great it's a great question. Um, so let me ask you how well your grandmother handles her cell phone. Um, you know, this is the people we're worried about. And I, I have a 95 year old mother in law who I think is going to electrocute herself every time she turns on the on her flip phone, let alone a cell phone. So ask yourself the question. It doesn't matter how AC an app you have. People have to be able to use it. 
The other thing is, is that the people we worry about the most, who seem to be the most, who are really right directly in the teeth of this uh, as the storm, as it blows through, are, are, are poor Latino immigrant blue-collar workers um, who may be sharing a cell phone among, you know, four or five guys. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's not a real, I, I, I don't see it as a, as a, an across the board solution. I see it as a great solution for college campuses and high schools and stuff like that, or, um, you know, among sort of younger, uh, uh, kind of younger people out of college who use their cell phones all the time and really can have a geolocating app. There are some very good ones out there, but they all sort of are premised on the fact that everyone walks around looking at their cell phone all day long. That's not quite right, but it's, you know, but they do have that, there's a certain degree of sophistication that they suppose. There's a wonderful organization called COVID Watch, um, which has uh, begun using a geolocating uh, kind of proximity app in um, at the University of Arizona and Northern Arizona University and Arizona State. And we're hoping to, at UCSF to use that among our healthcare staff. Again, you know, fairly, fairly, really part of the cognoscenti uh, that can, uh, you know, where it really w might make a difference. But you got to have a fair, you have to have a sort of a, a level of sophistication and availability of the technology to uh, uh, for it to make a difference. I think so. All hopefully, right. it'll take thirty percent off the top. That'd be great. Thank, thank you for that. I would just add for the listeners that. There are also, of course, uh, if we go down that path rather than the more uh, common traditional uh, follow-up by phone and by email, uh, there are some uh, important privacy implications of any technology that we look at. For me, that's always a, a consideration that has to be factored in as well. Um, I'm going to uh, try and uh, do some of these uh, questions very quickly because we're coming up on an hour and a half, and I want to respect everybody's time. Um, we do have a question from Dave in Sunnyvale. Uh, and let me see if Dave is uh, still on the line with a question about enforcement. Dave, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Thanks for your patience. What's your question, Dave? Well, it seems like uh, actually maybe two questions if I'm worth that or have that privilege. But one is just the enforcing idea. Uh, it's all about guidelines now and mandates, but it seems enforcing to make uh, the public really perform well uh, is lacking. So that's one question. All right. Let me, uh, Dave, I apologize. I'm gonna, Because of time, I'm going to ask, uh, we just limit uh, you to that one question. I'm going to turn just to Greta Hansen. Ms. Hansen, uh, what's your take on the challenges of enforcement and where we stand on that? Well, I think the the um, question from the caller really goes to the heart of why um, why the board was presented with and decided to adopt the ordinance that we referenced earlier in the town hall that will give us more tools to make sure where we see um, businesses or, or other individuals who are really not following the protocols that they need to follow to keep themselves in the community safe, that we have more tools um, at our disposal to bring those folks into compliance. Of course, you know, our our first hope is always that people will voluntarily comply and we um, make sure that we warn folks where we see noncompliance before taking more aggressive action. But we also know that there are um, 
some some folks who aren't going to comply voluntarily, and we're absolutely ready um, to ensure that those orders are enforced where we need to. And we have a team, um, multi multi agency team from the district attorney's office to the county council's office to our environmental health department, our public health staff, others who are um, ready to participate in those enforcement efforts and have already begun to do so um, in the time since the board adopted that ordinance. All right, thank you for that. Let me uh, go next uh, to uh, Irwin in Palo Alto, uh, who has uh, a question about uh, the flu, actually. Irwin, are you still with us on the call? I am, Joe. Hi. Hi, and nice to hear for... from you. What's your question today, Irwin? Always good to hear your voice. Thank you for hosting these town halls. If you don't mind, um, my question has mutated and divided. I'm going to offer two, and you can answer whichever one you think is more important. The first is that I'm concerned about the risk to teachers, school staff, and families from sending kids back into schools too early. I'm worried about the, the reopenings. And the second question, also school-related, is that I would love to hear Dr. Rutherford's thoughts about the recent report from Dr. Bonnie Halpern Felcher at Stanford about how vaping affects the susceptibility to COVID. All right, thank you for those uh, two questions. Uh, Dr. Uh, Rutherford, can, uh, because, only because time is tight, uh, thoughts about uh, impacts on uh, folks going back to school and then uh, anything you can share with us about uh, the impacts of vaping uh, as uh, part of the discussion about uh, COVID-19. Uh, so vaping is bad, period, okay? Um, we know that in China, the risk factor, the relative risk uh, of, of smoking is something like you're 13-fold more times more likely to develop severe disease if you smoke. That's almost to the order of lung cancer, so don't vape. That's easy. Uh, the second thing is, is that schools is way complicated, and I did grand rounds last week at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center on this very specific topic. Um, it's, there's a real division between middle and high school and elementary school. Elementary school, I think we can probably arrange in a way that minimizes risk to other students and to teachers. High school and middle school, there's really going to have to be heavy-duty sort of mandates around masks and not screwing around. Um, and, you know, you, uh, if there's going to be a third wave of infection in the fall, it's going to be in middle school, high schools, and colleges. Um, and that's going to that's gonna drive uh, a lot of stuff. So, I'm very concerned about middle schools and high schools, elementary schools. I think there are ways to make that work. And uh, thank you for that. And Dr. Rutherford, just to clarify, the challenge at the middle schools and the high schools is where there are subject-specific classes rather than a single self-contained classroom. And we've got youngsters who are moving from uh, one group of kids to another group of kids to another group of kids to another group of kids. Have I uh, uh, sort of assessed that accurately? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Aside, you know, leaving aside all their, the social interactions and everything else that goes on. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and um, uh, regrettably, uh, we have uh, questions for another hour and a half, uh, quite frankly, sitting in front of me. Uh, so many of you have uh, taken the time to be with us today. Uh, thank you again for that. My thanks, of course, to both uh, Dr. Rutherford and uh, Greta Hansen for uh, joining us for the discussion today. Uh, if you uh, would like to either listen to any part of this conversation again or 
have uh, friends, uh, family members, colleagues who uh, weren't able to join us this morning but might uh, find it helpful, uh, you can uh, just visit the coronavirus page on uh, my website at supervisorsimidian.com. Uh, uh, it will be up, I suspect, within 24 hours, if not sooner. Uh, and um, uh, the other thing I want to say, and uh, please, uh, I do hope you'll take us up on this. If you'd like to offer a comment uh, or leave a message, uh, please do just stay on the line for a moment after the call has ended uh, and just listen for the tone. At that point, uh, you can leave any message behind you like. Uh, and uh, if there are questions, we'll try and get back to you with answers. Uh, that may take a little bit of time. Uh, but uh, let us know if you find these helpful. Are there specific topics you'd like to talk about? And a, and a very uh, helpful uh, thing is uh, when is the best time uh, to hold these? We have done them now at both uh, 3 p.m. on a Sunday as well as 11 a.m. on a Sunday. Uh, is one of those uh, better uh, or uh, easier, more convenient? Uh, and or would you like to have them uh, midweek in the evening? Um, I want to make these as accessible to as many people as possible. So uh, please uh, do let us know. And again, uh, if there's anything you would like to share, I, I hope you will do it uh, at the sound of the tone. And finally, I just want to say thank you all for your willingness to give up a piece of your day uh, to participate, uh, to listen, also to share your concerns and your questions. Again, my regrets, we had so many questions that we just couldn't get to today. Um, I, I know these are challenging times uh, given not only the pandemic, but the economic consequences, the wildfires, the heat waves. Uh, it, it's just um, it's uh, heartening, however, to see so many good people put their shoulder to the wheel, uh, both the professional staff, but also uh, the acts of human kindness that uh, I, I see and I hope you all see or hear about on a daily basis. So um, we will get to a better place. We will continue to do our best in uh, our office to keep you informed. Uh, and uh, if you need help, feel free uh, to either uh, email, uh, easy to access on uh, the webpage, supervisorsimidian.com, or call our office at 408-299-5050. Thanks so much. Hope the rest of your day goes well, and uh, we'll be in touch. Take care.